Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 7.08 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock along with our fabulous studio coordinator, Jonathan Lowe. On really a beautiful Saturday evening. I mean, it's just gorgeous out there. Uh, 82 degrees. Uh, one of those really pleasant nights to do something outside. You know, it won't get dark until later. It's just, I think these summer days are absolutely treasures. Uh, and something that I know that all of you uh, enjoy probably as much as I do. Well, we have a lot more ahead. Uh, this half hour, we're going to chat uh, with uh, Rhonda Martinson, who's a board secretary for the Battered Women's Justice Project. And later this hour, we're going to visit with an expert on drinking water in Minnesota, there was just a report released that shows there were various things in different communities, drinking waters. How, how do they test the drinking water? Is our drinking water safe? Obviously, a lot of people heard about the tragedy in Flint, Michigan, and we're so much better off here. But still, there are concerns about the quality of our own drinking water. But uh, the first issue I want to talk about is just uh, domestic violence. And I, I came to this – I was actually – off the day of O.J. Simpson's parole hearing. And so I got to watch the whole thing. And at first I thought, well, I'm not going to watch it. And then I couldn't look away. And in that hearing, uh, he talked about how he had lived a conflict-free life. And all I could think of was, wait a minute. You know, I remember that trial. I remember, you know, even right – even before I think he was arrested – uh, Nicole Brown, his, his former wife's sister, was saying, you have to go and look at OJ because Nicole told me, I think she even left a letter saying, if something ever happens to me, you have to go to OJ because he has been violent with me. We have called the police and they did uh, a number of – or she did a number of times. And it's just it, – it made me think about where we are. Have we advanced at all? Uh, are we better off here in Minnesota than we were back then? So uh, I wanted to bring on Rhonda Martinson, who is the board secretary for the Battered Women's Justice Project. Uh, and I appreciate, Rhonda, you're coming on this evening. Thank you, Esme. Uh, and I guess I just, like a lot of other people, I I've sort of froze. And I'm sure people who are, uh, work in this field must have uh, trembled when they heard those words saying, I've, left a conflict, a con- I've lived a conflict-free life. What what are your thoughts about um, sort of that and, and where we are when it comes to domestic violence all these years later? Well, a couple of answers. Um, people that commit domestic violence are often engaging in a, a pattern of controlling and abusive acts towards their intimate partner. And a very frequent factor in that kind of relationship is a history of violence. And so that would be one thing that would make the kind of comment that you just stated rather suspect is that I've lived a conflict-free life because many times um, that is not the case for someone that has committed an act of domestic violence. 
Is that is that something common though that that you hear people, um, you know, the, these these people, these perpetrators, explain it away that way or justify it that way? Uh, yes. Or, or insist um, that they've done nothing wrong when obviously, I mean, and I, I'm taking. Let's take the murder of Nicole Brown out of this. There was a record of of O.J. Simpson abusing her and beating her that was documented. And she had gone to loved ones like her sister and, and written things down saying, you know, she was worried that this is what might happen to her. So if you take the murder out of it, I mean, this is documented and he's saying, I've loved a conflict-free life. I mean, that's not a conflict-free life to, to beat your wife. No, you're right. Um, and it is common to hear um, people initially arrested, convicted, sentenced, um, as a prosecutor of domestic violence, um, earlier on in my career, my criminal justice career, I can remember um, arguing a sentencing of a domestic violence defendant in court and the defendant turning to me and saying, I only slapped her. That's not domestic violence. Um, I've actually had the opportunity to sit in on batters groups many times in the last 20 years in many different states and heard similar things of, something only being this, um, and that isn't violent, or I called her names and kept her from getting help, but um, that's not violence, and so on. So so in terms of, of they're either you know, not really sort of owning up to it or else somehow justifying it or minimizing that behavior, in terms of... Um, where you know one of the issues that has always been so difficult in these cases, and I know it's still the case, is that the victim is often reluctant to go forward with a prosecution or, or to go forward in that sort of torturous ideal of, of you know testifying and all of those things. Is that still a problem? Oh, very much so. Um, one of the things that I've had an experience or some ex- great deal of experience in is um, witness or victim intimidation in domestic violence cases. And if one reads the literature, um, which I've read a great deal of, and as well as um, sitting in on victim support groups around the country, um, this is something very common. In fact, if you were to interview prosecutors and felony investigators from around the country, you would find that intimidation, in other words, um, that's often the act that makes victims reluctant to report or cooperate with the prosecution, is just as common in domestic violence cases as it is in gang cases. And going back to OJ, um, I think for some people, the thing that was important here is is that you know, this this basically said to everyone loud and clear, you know, this 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 can happen even if you are rich and famous and beautiful and seem to have everything in the world going for you. This can happen to you as well. I mean, was it was it one of the first cases that said that? It probably publicly so, but when again, when one looks at um, statistics, when one listens to uh, women, and I say women because statistics show that that that's typically the the gender that's involved in domestic violence victimization, um, it's, it is the, um, it cuts across all economic strata, you know, all um, classes of people, all races, religions, cultures. Um, so, yes, it's, 
it was surprising, you're right, and that was probably the first very publicized case that would indicate that surprise to us, but it's certainly not um, something that's uncommon across the country. All right. I know that there have been um, a lot of budgetary concerns, you know, along the way. I mean, how how do you feel in terms of of the situation here in Minnesota? Um, Are there the kinds of assets that are accessible to women, men, children, teens who are victimized by domestic violence? As far as um, programming, uh, Minnesota has a reputation for being very progressive in that area for both victims and offenders. Of course, if you were to talk to people here in Minnesota, um, you know, there are a great deal of frustrations with um, funding, you know, that um, people have been used to accessing being trimmed or cut in some instances. And, of course, in rural areas in any part of the country, not just Minnesota, um, resources like that are always an issue. Um, but one of the things that I think is helpful to remember is you know, the, the resource of prosecution as well um, has changed a great deal in the last 20 years. So when I look at Minnesota, uh, the Star Tribune did a, a great piece a couple years ago by using data from the Minnesota Sentencing Commission as well as interviewing people from the state coalition uh, for battered women and interviewing some suburban prosecutors. And when you look at the rates of prosecution from, say, 2003 over a 10-year stretch to 2013, um, there's been a very significant increase in uh, prosecuting domestic assault as well as those individuals that violate orders of protection. And it didn't, um, wasn't there sort of a change in the law, or maybe it was just the way that the prosecutors here in Minnesota went after these cases, is that even if the, the victim backs out and says, I'm not going to testify willingly, they, they, they can go forward with that. Right. Um, I went to law school and I graduated in 1989, which was the first year that my law school began including information about domestic violence prosecution and its criminal justice courses. And shortly after that, in the 90s, is when you saw this wave of was referred to as victimless or evidence-based prosecution across the United States by using things like uh, police officer observations, photographs, and so on. And then in 2004, five or six, I think, um, there was a United States Supreme Court case called um, Crawford versus Washington that without getting um, too legalistic here, changed um, and sort of hampered a little bit the way that prosecutors could use um, out-of-court statements. However, uh, attention to things like phone calls from the jail that are meant to intimidate victims, um, body camera footage that now can capture what victims are saying and what they look like upon the scene have, have still been a great help to forwarding prosecution. All right, and you say this is, is, in respect to a former prosecutor. Um, we have to take a, a very quick break, um, but I'd like to continue this conversation uh, with Rhonda Martinson. She's the board secretary of the Battered Women's Justice Project. She is a former prosecutor. Uh, I'd like to sort of you know pick her brain about what 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 people should do, um, what what improvements there could be, um, what victims could do, what family members can do. So keep it here. You're listening to News Radio eight three zero WCCO. It is 721. Esme Murphy back with you here on News Radio 830 WCCO, uh, chatting with Rhonda Martinson. She's the board secretary of the Battered Women's Justice Project. 
Um, in general, um, what has gotten better in terms of um, and or perhaps what what is what has gotten better in terms of this whole issue about people getting help in terms of prosecutions in terms of families and children getting help and what perhaps has not gotten better or just has stayed the same. One of the things that I think has been really important is this idea of a coordinated community response to domestic violence, which began right here in Minnesota. And no one person, in other words, no law enforcement officer, no prosecutor, no judge um, can be the lone ranger and fix everything by him or herself. It's very important for the uh, for the kind of success that you're asking about, the improvement that you're asking about, to come through people coordinating and sharing information. Um, you know, it does no good to uh, write a great police report, for example, if there's no way that that making of making visible of the violence isn't passed on to the next person that needs to act on it. And in terms of, um, and so is that happening more and more, or are there still lapses? Yes, I think for one thing, you know, technology has made information sharing um, a great deal easier and tracking of cases and so on. Um, simply the better training provided by the funding created by the Violence Against Women Act in the 1990s. When I began doing training at that time, you know, a lot of people just simply weren't aware of even the very basics of domestic violence dynamics and how one should respond to that or prosecute it. Um, that's not the case today. If you tried that sort of basic training today, people would roll their eyes and say, I already know that stuff. Um, so even just that basic education and that appropriate criminal justice response, the training for it um, didn't exist back in the 80s and early 90s, but it's very prevalent today. But, you know, the technology, um, and so it's easier to figure out because you can just do the Google search and, you know, where, where assets are, where places are to go for help. But hasn't technology also been a problem? And I know that that's something that um, Senator Al Franken has talked about is is the ability with smartphones to track people, to track individuals and to know where they are. I mean, how, how big a threat is that? Oh, that's huge. I, I agree with you, and I followed um, Senator Franken's efforts in that area, um, which began, as I recall, with a woman who um, unfortunately had some stalking app unwittingly placed on her phone so that as she was moving through the courthouse in Duluth, Minnesota, um, her abuser was actually able to text her and say, I know that you're getting a protection order, I know that you're in this office, and so on. And so you're right, um, as we ourselves in the criminal justice system have benefited from technology, unfortunately, uh, particularly sophisticated abusers and offenders and stalkers and harassers have made that work to their advantage as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's wonderful in some respects if you want to make sure, you know, that your kid with the smartphone is, you know, where you think they are or if they're late. But I, I've heard that this is a tremendous, um, a tremendous problem out there. What I am sure there are people out there listening tonight who are worried about themselves or a loved one. What what should they do? What, what would you advise them to do? Um, if if they don't know where their closest community based advocacy program is, in other words, their domestic violence program, um, I would recommend that they call the. Minnesota Coalition for Battered Women, which can tell them what the closest program is to their home, their 
their jurisdiction, their place of residence. And I, cause I think it's very important to work with someone about um, safety planning. Um, although this sounds rather strange. I mean, I'm used to working in the criminal justice system and in the field of domestic violence, but people who aren't still may not have a good handle on what domestic violence is. Um, I, a lot of women especially don't know, um, or don't understand, um, you know, the dangers of, of a particularly serious assault like strangulation. Um, a lot of women that may be being sexually abused within an intimate partner relationship don't understand what that is. And so locating an advocacy program so you can talk these things through and begin the process of safety planning would be A number one. Uh, and, you know, I've got, unfortunately, that crisis connection line, which has gone out of business, which was wonderful because it had been around for so year, so many years. But the number that I have just pulling up for the Minnesota Coalition for Battered Women, 651-646-6177. And so you're saying, and I'll say that again, 651-646-6177. Uh, one of the things that um, you can be um, – so you're saying that each county has – its own resources to help in this area? Not every county, but some some counties uh, that are more rural, for example, will, will cover um, populations on a regional basis. So perhaps, you know, a shelter, for example, may, may cover uh, two or three counties. And, and this, is, this is very typical across the United States. Um, every state has a coalition on domestic and or sexual violence, and they are typically the best place to call if you aren't certain where you're closest advocacy program is. All right. Um, because uh, there is there is help out there. And of course, if, if there is, you know, a life-threatening situation, call 911. So um, yes. Rhonda Martinson, uh, thank you so much. Um, because I think more people talk about this, I think maybe the barriers and even the stigmas that remain and, and the fear uh, might somehow dissipate. Um, Rhonda Martinson, uh, board secretary for the Battered Women's Justice Project. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you, Bethany. Absolutely. Uh, my, my, my absolute pleasure here. Such an important issue and one that, you know, you kind of wonder, as I said, I began because I looked at the, it looked at the O.J. Simpson hearing and I heard him say, I've lived a conflict-free life. And I thought, that's just not true. Even if you take apart that, take away that murder, even before that, even before that, there was a documented record of, of him being an abuser and uh, a documented record of Nicole Brown being fearful and scared and warning people that if something ever happened to her, that they should look at OJ. Uh, sounds like there's still a lot of uh, issues and concerns with people coming forward and following through with prosecution. It's good to know that the laws have changed, though, to make it easier to pr- uh, prosecute these individuals. All right, folks, uh, we are going to take a break. Uh, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about a report that came out about the, the status of our drinking water. And it's actually very detailed from the state of Minnesota. And it's actually from all over the state because the water is tested to make sure it's safe. And I, I thought it'd be worth, worth talking about because, uh, you know, you should know and you can find out how safe the water is, what's in your water, how your water differs from the community next door to yours or the community across the state. Uh, It's all available and it's all public. So keep it here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 
It is 734 in the Twin Cities, and uh, I want to give a shout-out to Jonathan Lowe. Um, I did mention that that crisis connection line that had been up for years, um, decades, uh, had shut down, and it actually – there was an 11th hour, a midnight hour reprieve um, that was – the state rescued it basically until yes. September. And I don't want to take credit for that. There were a couple of listeners that were listening to the program and they caught yeah. it. I, I actually did not catch that. But yes, this happened uh, two weeks ago where uh, right. some people uh, have known that the, the state de- uh, health department did uh, provide some funding for crisis. Temporary connection. funding through, the, uh, through list, late September. Through late September. And the phone number there is 612 379 Six three six three six one two three seven nine six three six three. Uh Certainly, uh, the thing about that line is that it's been it, it's been on for, as I said, decades, and uh, it's hopefully the the, temp, the funding will not just be temporary because it does serve a lot of people. Well, there has been so much news going on uh, the, these past few weeks this summer. Really, it's been very very busy. And I saw an interesting release come out uh, across my desk, and again, there's just been so much going on at both the local and national level that it's been difficult to really cover everything. But the Minnesota Department of Health um, uh, announced the, the testing on the on the drinking supply. They test the drinking water around the state of Minnesota, and the annual report shows the state's water supply is in good shape, but there are some specific challenges. Joining us right now to talk about that is Tani Eschenauer. She is the Director of Planning for Drinking Water Protection at the Minnesota Department of Health. And Tani, first of all, I hope I am saying your last name correctly. Oh, yeah. No worries. You're right. It's Eschenauer. Okay. Well, and it sounds like with that, that title, which is very impressive, the Director of Planning for Drinking Water Protection at the Minnesota Department of Health, you're probably the person. Well, I'm glad to be talking with you tonight about this, but I have to acknowledge that I'm a part of a much bigger okay. team with a lot of experience and expertise. Well, I think a lot of people, um, you know, I, I think a lot of us take our drinking water for granted here. So tell us, because, you know, and we've all heard about the catastrophes, you know, that, that occurred in Kessler, that occurred in Flint and other communities. Tell us, what does the state of Minnesota do in terms of the water supplies? Because each community is getting water from different places. Right. So, The Minnesota Department of Health is the state agency charged with protecting our drinking water supplies, and we do that in two main ways. With public water supplies, we implement the Safe Drinking Water Act, so that's authority that we receive from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. That's the focus of our report, but we also are responsible for uh, wells, where they're constructed, and how they're constructed, and we do that through the Minnesota Well Code. Uh, the public and, this, wa- and so these are these are individuals. And how many individuals are actually still getting their drinking water from wells, from private wells? Okay, so in the state of Minnesota, about twenty percent of the population, one point one million. Uh, citizens get their water from private wells, from domestic wow. wells that they're responsible for. The state uh, regulates how these wells are constructed and where they're constructed, and we require an initial water quality sample for uh, bacteria, so that's something that can make you sick within uh, hours to days, 
for nitrate, which is particularly a concern for babies and infants that are bottle-fed using formula made from that water. And then we also require a test for arsenic since 2008, and that's more of a long-term concern. Drinking elevated levels of arsenic over a lifetime can cause diseases like cancer. All right. And, and so you, you do all this, isn't it? What, what about those people who have the, the well was built 100 years ago? Well, when it comes to those wells that were built before our well code, so before about 1972 through 74, we don't know a whole lot about those wells. And protecting that water and ensuring that it's safe to drink, that is the responsibility of the well owner. And at the health department, we're very concerned about this because these folks don't have the same degree of protection that people who drink from a public water supply do. So we do a lot of outreach and education, but we still rely on those well owners to take action and to test. And for bacteria, we like them to test every year because it does cause disease. And for nitrate, it's when they know they're going to have an infant or a pregnant woman in the home drinking the water. And arsenic, we've done some recent research, and we believe that that initial test, if it's done properly, is a good idea of what the arsenic levels will be over the lifetime of the well. And do you have any idea? So you, you said, you know, 20% of Minnesotans uh, get their water from private wells, which is, I, I didn't realize it was quite that high. Um, 1.2 million people. I mean, that's an awful lot of people. Do you know, do you have a percentage for how many are, are getting their water from wells that were constructed before this well code went into place, in other words, before 1972? We don't have a good idea of that. We don't have a way to learn about that. We have some ideas about it, and one way that we know we can protect those people is through outreach and education and also encouraging them to seal wells that were used in the past but are no longer in use. We want those to be sealed because when a well is open, that provides a pathway for contaminants on the surface to go down into the drinking water aquifer, down where the uh, groundwater is kept, and contaminate that, and that can affect other people's private wells. All right. And I do want to get to the communities here, but I just, I, 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 to be honest, I really didn't realize that the number of people getting their water from private wells was that high. Um, so it, do you just recommend that they test every year? We recommend testing every year for bacteria. That's correct. Okay. And then, and how expensive is that? Is that something that, that there's a rebate for or you just have to go and do it yourself? I mean, um, people it, are busy. It's, <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's very economical. It runs 25 to $30. People can call their county. They can call either their environmental services department or their local public health department and ask them about testing. For example, in Washington County, you can call their environmental service, or let's see, Washington County Public Health and Environment, and they have kits all prepared because they're anxious for well owners to test their wells. Okay, so Washington County has the kits all ready to go. So and then many the, counties do. Many counties do. Okay, and so then you test it, and is it a long turnaround or is it... You know, I don't know. I I know that for bacteria, they have to incubate the sample and try and culture or grow the bacteria, but it's not a, a long period of time. No. Okay, and and if it comes back with, and I guess there there are certain standards, right? 
that, that right. you have. Yeah, well, we don't want to see any of the... We look for certain bacteria that are easier to find, and that's like a sign or an indicator of whether or not there's other bacteria that could be harmful in the well. And so when it's positive for that, then we have instructions on how they can disinfect their well and then flush their well to clean the disinfectant out and then put it back into use again if it tests negative at that time. Uh, for nitrate, we have information on different treatment systems that they can use to pull the nitrate out of their drinking water, and we really encourage people to be careful in how they operate those and to maintain them regularly. And the same goes for arsenic. When we get information back that says there's nitrate or arsenic in the well, we send out information because we want to make it as easy as possible for people to protect their families. Okay. And, and um, you know, staying on the subject of the private wells, you, you said one of the highest level of concerns is that if you have a private well, you're getting your water from it, and somebody in your household becomes pregnant – or if there's an infant. Or yeah, if there's an infant and, and so they, their sole source of nutrition is, is especially coming from... Um, from breast milk. Or breast milk, somebody who's drinking the, that water. I mean, that because it's so critical in, in an infant or, or a pregnant woman. Um, yeah. The, the you got to be careful. Con- concern is for infants who are drinking formula made with water, with the water from that well. Because infants drink a lot more water for their body weight or a lot more liquid than we adults do, and they're at a very vulnerable stage of development. So exposure to some sort of toxin like nitrate can really um, have a huge effect on them. All right. Um, I'll tell you what. Let me um, – if we can uh, hang on here, we do have to take a quick break. Uh, we're chatting with Tani Eschenauer. She's the Director of Planning for Drinking Water Protection at the Minnesota Department of Health. Um, we've been talking about the private wells. I didn't realize it was that many people. That's why I took so long on that. But uh, after the break, I want to talk to her about the kinds of testing that's done on the public systems, which is the other uh, 80% of us uh, are on public systems. So keep it right here, folks. Uh, the, the McCarthy Auto World time is 745. The no hail sale is going on now at McCarthy Auto World. Save up to 20% off select Buicks and GMCs. It is 7.48 in the Twin Cities, uh, chatting with Tani Eschenauer. She is the Director of Planning for Drinking Water Protection at the Minnesota Department of Health. And we're talking about how the state tests drinking water. Uh, now, they don't test the drinking water on these private wells, which is about 1.1 million people, about 20% of Minnesotans. But, Tani, as I understand it, you do test the public systems, which is the, the other 80% of us. How often do you test the, the, the public systems? Well, it, it uh, depends on the contaminant that we're concerned about. And systems often do more testing beyond what we do. So it depends on what the health effects are of the contaminant that we're concerned about, whether it's ever been found in that system or likely to be found in that system. And we have a very um, efficient cost-benefit approach to testing for these contaminants because testing is expensive. And we test for about 100 different contaminants in these public water supplies or community water supplies, as well as uh, water supplies that are run by businesses or resorts, restaurants, camps, other places where they're not on a city system, 
but you as a member of the public go and drink water there and expect to be served safe water. And uh, let me ask you, but but there's no um, benchmark for how often, for instance, St. Louis Park should be tested. Yeah, I don't know all the schedules for the testing, but the the EPA provides us with guidelines, and so we're very careful to follow those guidelines about the frequency of testing. And in addition to that, uh, Minnesota has a little bit different approach in that uh, we don't wait until the level of a contaminant has exceeded a standard to go and uh, do enforcement action against one of those systems as the regulator for drinking water in the state. But instead, we have district engineers there in different regions of the state, and they're responsible for these public water supplies, also sanitarians who work for the ones that or work with the ones that aren't communities. And they build relationships with these systems, and they also watch the trends in these contaminants as the results come back from the laboratory. So, for example, with nitrate, we don't wait until it's reached the public health standard of 10 micrograms per liter, but instead, when it crosses that line at about 3, when we know there's some kind of source of nitrate near that water supply, we begin to talk with that system about where is this coming from and what can we do to prevent it from rising in the water supply system. And that's looking at it in the source, not where it's uh, in the distribution going out to the people who drink the water. Um, Teddy, where can people get the results? Can they find the results easily from their own communities? Yes. The U.S. EPA requires that every uh, community public water supply publish an annual report. We call it a water quality report. EPA calls it a consumer confidence report. And we just have gone through that process here where we review the results of the systems over the past year and we send out those results to the systems. They, in turn, send it out or make it available on their website for every customer of their system. And in there, they give the results for everything that's been detected in their system. And as I mentioned before, we do a lot of investigative sampling that's beyond the Safe Drinking Water Act. And if we have found something in that water, even though it might be outside of the Safe Drinking Water Act, that is also available to customers to know. Because it's really important for people to know what's in their water because we want them to trust their tap water. We want them to be confident about their tap water. Um, And, well, I'm just going to read some from the... Notice that you put out here, um, one example here, three community systems exceeded the standard for two naturally occurring radioactive materials, radium-226 and 228, at the end of 2016. In each case, system operators notified residents and explained that the findings do not constitute an emergency situation. Each of the affected systems has either started to make infrastructure changes or is studying alternatives to meet the maximum contaminant level. So does that mean that, that yes, they um, exceeded the standard, but it did not pose a health threat? Right. So those two contaminants that you mentioned are ones that we're concerned about people drinking over a lifetime. And so to have an ex- short, a short-term exposure to drink it for a short time is not so much of a health concern, but we wouldn't want it to go on for an extended period of time. 
So what you read is talking about that partnership between the district engineer and the system where they're looking at how can they change the way that they treat their water or can they blend water from a well that might be higher in that contaminant with a well that might be lower in that contaminant to get below the drinking water standard and have that water be safe for people to drink. And so sometimes that takes... Uh, a little bit longer period of time, especially if they have to drill a new well, which is quite expensive, or if they have to put on additional treatment, they would have to research and design a plant. All of those things they do in cooperation with our department because any change like that has to be approved by our department. It's very collegial, but we are, we are watching very carefully what goes on because we want to prevent a system like ha- or a problem like happened in Flint. Well, let me ask you because we just did get a listener question about testing for lead. That is something you test for, I assume. That's right. There is a part of the Safe Drinking Water Act. It's called the Lead and Copper Rule, and it requires that each system test a certain percentage of their customers, and they test for lead in the home. And they look for the level of lead, and if it exceeds an action level, then they're required to take action. And to so do you're testing in the home as well, like from the tap? Right, because lead isn't found in our drinking water sources. It's not found usually in groundwater or rivers or lakes. It's something that gets into the water as it travels from the drinking water plant out through the distribution system and into people's homes. When the water sits in a pipe, it can absorb lead from the lining of the pipe. And there's several strategies that our systems can use to prevent that leaching, that absorbing of lead um, from happening in the water. And so the testing that's done in people's homes is to check on those systems, those drinking water plants, to make sure that they are either uh, changing the pH of their water so the water is less likely to absorb lead, or they can also do add some um, phosphate to the water, which creates a lining in the pipe and prevents the lead from leaching into the water. But we should also remember that uh, plumbing for many years within people's homes used lead because it was a very effective way of doing plumbing, and fixtures can contain lead. And so for that reason, we encourage people to let their water run in the morning or any time when the water has sat in the pipes. Just let it run for a little while. Use that water to water their plants or something like that. And then when the pipes are flushed, you can be sure that the lead level, if there was any, is low. All right. Well, listen, um, Tani Eschenauer, thank you so much. We certainly appreciate your insights this evening. Thank you for being with us this Saturday night. Glad to be able to talk about this very important topic. Absolutely. Thank you, Tanny. You're welcome. Have a good evening. All right, folks. Uh, 7.56, Esme Murphy with you for another hour. Coming up next, uh, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. My goodness, uh, (laughs) again, so much to talk about. Um, Really extraordinary developments, and I haven't even checked the President's Twitter feed in the last two hours. So maybe (laughs) to be up to date... Uh, I, I better do that. But anyway, a lot to talk about. David Schultz, the one and only, will be with us uh, coming up here uh, just after the news break at the top of the hour for uh, national and local news. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. 
We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 